0: 2015 saw an extreme heat event across South Asia. If you'll recall, over 4,000 people died. The morgues in Karachi closed because they didn't have anywhere to put the bodies.
1: Welcome to This New Climate, an acclimatized podcast about the innovations that could transform our world as we enter a new era of climate instability. You just heard Anjali Jaiswal, Senior Attorney and Director of the Natural Resources Defence Council's India Initiative, talking about the devastating impact of the severe heatwaves in 2015. The experience in South Asia shows that extreme weather events in cities are not just an inconvenience, they can be a matter of life and death. But are such severe impacts of climate change in urban areas inevitable? In this episode, we explore how a new wave of planners are challenging the orthodox approaches to urban development to make cities better prepared for climate threats and make them better places to live at the same time. Hello, my name's Will Bugler and you are listening to This New Climate. We are continuing our series on innovations that can help the world respond to the challenges of climate change. The approaches that we're focusing on are those that have the potential to challenge fundamentally the way we do things, so that the scale of the response matches the challenges posed by the impending climate breakdown. It's an approach that is supported by the European Institute of Innovation and Technology's Climate Kick initiative. In this, episode four of a six-part series, we explore Blue-Green Solutions, a systems approach developed by Imperial College London and supported by Climate Kick that encourages urban planners to rethink the definition of infrastructure and deliver effective adaptation in cities by enhancing water systems and vegetation. But what impact can water and plants really have on managing climate impacts in cities? Is the approach effective? And if it is, Why are so many cities overlooking it in favour of hard infrastructure? To get to the bottom of these questions, let's start by considering the impact of heat on cities. Last year, countries in Northern Europe, and indeed many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, experienced a prolonged heat wave. Temperatures in countries like Portugal and Spain topped 46 degrees C. That's around 115 Fahrenheit for our American listeners while heat records toppled in countries further north, such as those in Scandinavia. The heat wave led to wildfires and was accompanied by prolonged drought that led to crop failures across the continent. In the United Kingdom, 2018 was one of the hottest summers on record, and the conditions caused wildfires to erupt in large areas of moorland peat, which burned for several weeks. The impact of high temperatures are felt especially acutely in cities. Claire Hearn is a Deputy Clinical Nurse Specialist with England's National Health Service and she was working in London during the summer heatwave.
2: I worked in the heatwave we experienced recently this summer. Some areas departments were given air conditioning units as few areas within the hospitals have air conditioning. Water bottles were delivered to some wards which had high risk patients on them. We do see increased admissions. Due to patients that already have infections possibly can become at more of a risk of spiking a temperature.
1: As Claire says, pressure on health services during heat waves increases considerably. Admission statistics for July 2018 from NHS England showed that with a total of 2.17 million admissions to a e units, walk-in centres and urgent treatment centres, The NHS treated 27% more patients in emergency care compared to the same period in 2017. High temperatures are particularly problematic for people who are less able to take the necessary action to cool themselves down.
2: So if you've got dementia or you're vulnerable, you're confused or you're elderly or you're a child under four, then you won't necessarily know what to do to keep yourself cool. So you won't know to drink more water. You won't know to wear loose-fitting clothing.
1: So the most vulnerable people tend to suffer the worst effects of heat waves. Extreme temperatures, like many other climate risks, act as risk multipliers for those with other conditions. Those people who are already experiencing health complications are therefore especially susceptible to the most dangerous effects of heat waves.
2: If you've got respiratory problems or cardiac issues, then you're at a higher risk of having complications with heat stroke. And this occurs when the body's means of controlling its internal temperatures start to fail. So symptoms that can be caused by heat stress are the inability to concentrate, muscle cramps, heat rash, severe thirst, fainting, heat exhaustion, fatigue, giddiness, nausea, headaches, moist skin, heat stroke, and hot dry skin as well confusion and convulsions and eventually the loss of consciousness and in most severe disorders can result in death if not treated.
1: The point at which temperatures become life-threatening varies from place to place. The temperatures in northern European countries like the UK do not have to reach the searing heat experienced in other parts of the world but the impact of such events are often amplified as people and infrastructure are less well prepared.
2: In Spain, they will have all these measures in place. They will probably have air conditioning in most of their hospitals. They probably will have things like ice-cold water. Some of our wards don't even have ice machines that work. So we're really unprepared.
1: Extreme temperatures are threatening cities around the world. And if we look outside of Europe, heat waves of a much higher severity are becoming increasingly deadly. Speaking of her experience in South Asia, Anjali Jaiswal of the Natural Resource Defense Council highlights the severity of the threat.
0: We saw in India, when they had an extreme heat event in 2010. And within one month period in May of 2010, they saw over 1,200 deaths. Spikes as the temperature went up, spikes as the death counts went up. If we don't change what we're doing and have mitigation under business as usual, we're going to see records break. And just last summer, it reached 50 degrees C here in India. When we started this project, hearing those numbers, 50 degrees C, we thought, oh, how is that possible? Well, we've seen it on the ground and how that's happening. And the human body cannot survive outside in 50 degrees C. You will have organ failure, liver failure, dehydration, vomiting. Your body will stop functioning.
1: Like in the UK, vulnerable groups often suffer most during these heat waves. In India, high levels of poverty and poor quality housing is the most significant indicator of heat wave risk.
0: By some of the city numbers alone, one-fourth of the city's population lives in some communities, poor communities, outdoor workers, construction workers, cart pullers. And in India, what you see, and across the world, the battle against poverty, is the same battle against climate change. So it is about keeping our cities and residents healthy and thriving.
1: Of course, heat waves are just one of many interconnected climate threats people in cities have to deal with. There is also risk of water scarcity and drought and an increased risk of flooding, for instance. So clearly, city planners need to find new solutions to deal with these problems and, as Anjali says, keep our cities and their residents healthy and thriving. The prevailing approach to adapting to climate change is characterised by two things. Firstly, cities rely on hard infrastructure, flood walls, new sewers, raised roads, air conditioning, and so on. Secondly, city governments put a lot of focus on emergency planning and response to prepare for disasters. However, a growing number of city planners, architects, and designers suggest that better results can be achieved by using a fundamentally different approach. The approach known as blue-green solutions, is essentially based on the premise that cities could be designed to be much more resilient if more attention was given to vegetation and green spaces, and water and blue spaces. Because of the dominance of hard or grey infrastructure approaches, blue-green solutions are often characterised as being somehow in opposition to these traditional models. Tim van Hatten from Varheningen University has worked on many projects involving nature-based approaches in urban areas. He explains why there is such a tension between the two approaches.
3: I think one of the problems is that we still need to know much more about nature-based solutions, of how effective they really are, because we have a lot of experience with civil engineering solutions, and we can uh, calculate, predict very precise how effective these are. But for nature-based solutions, there's still a lot of uncertainties, combined with the uncertainties about uh, the climate effects we will have, there's still a lot of questions of how effective these nature-based solutions really are.
1: So as Tim says, decision-makers like hard infrastructure because it's tried and tested. A significant barrier for blue-green solutions is that there's much less good evidence of their efficacy, and measuring the true cost and benefits to cities of these measures is more complicated than with grey infrastructure. But for Seido Maksimovic, Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Engineering at Imperial College London, the two approaches should not be viewed as conflicting at all. First of all, we
4: are not against grey infrastructure. On the contrary, grey infrastructure has its role. It will continue to be used, but at more balanced proportion with the
1: nature-based green infrastructure. Green infrastructure can replace a lot of them, but not fully. For Professor Maksimovic, it's not the incompatibility with gray infrastructure that prevents blue green solutions from gaining traction but other barriers.
4: One of the major barriers first of all it's not well known as a concept. That is one of the obstacles. The other obstacle is that the legal framework is not yet fully developed
1: to support this and make it even mandatory if needed. So part of the reason why blue green solutions are overlooked seems to be a lack of understanding about what the approach actually entails. This has been compounded by the fact that the legal and regulatory frameworks have developed over many years alongside grey infrastructure approaches. So, how did grey infrastructure become so dominant? Well, urban planning originated around the turn of the last century. Cities, especially in Europe and the US, had grown extremely fast, and health concerns were beginning to arise due to large slums and the proximity of housing to heavy industry. The need for better planning was clear, and there were many efforts to incorporate green spaces into cities. In the UK, for example, Ebenezer Howard designed garden cities, which, among other things, envisage extensive green spaces close to where people lived, separating the residential from the industrial. However, it was another trend, modernism, that really took off. Modernists like Otto Wagner, Tony Garnier, and a little later Le Corbusier created futuristic urban spaces full of concrete and steel, imagining the city as a machine. As engineering techniques continued to advance, construction of grey infrastructure became faster. This was particularly important in Europe after the Second World War, and entrenched the approach further. So while the urban planning discipline was born out of a desire to improve public health and well-being, as the 20th century progressed, more emphasis was put on functionality and transport. In more recent years, due to the combined effects of climate change, pollution and socio-economic challenges, the discourse in urban development has begun to shift again to focus on cities that provide healthier and more social spaces that promote a better quality of life for their inhabitants. This shift has provided the space for blue-green solutions to emerge once more. Tim van Hattem explains how these approaches can benefit cities.
3: Well, there's a lot of attention uh, to nature-based solutions uh, recently. Uh, I think that's a really good thing, because nature-based solutions, they can solve uh, large parts of, of these problems. And wh- one important thing is that our most of our cities are developed or designed to remove the water that falls in the city as soon as possible and to get it out of the city. But what we see recently is that these heavy rainfalls, when they will increase, it is impossible to get rid of that water anymore because our sewer systems are not designed on these heavy rainfalls. And it's almost impossible to put these large amounts of rainwater under the ground and to remove it out of the city.
1: For Tim, this example epitomizes the problem with traditional planning approaches. The desire to move water out of the city as quickly as possible via sewers inevitably conflicts with the inflexibility of the infrastructure to deal with changing environmental conditions, a situation that is becoming ever more obvious as climate change drives more extreme events.
3: So we have to change the design of our cities and we have to uh, start seeing water more as a resource And nature-based solutions play a very important role in that, because nature-based solutions restore the drainage capacity of the city, because most of our cities at this moment are covered by uh, concrete. And nature-based solutions provide opportunities to infiltrate this rainwater again, to store it again, and to uh, only remove it out of the city when there's no other opportunity.
1: So by better understanding how water flows through the city, planners are able to manage the flow of water, creating permeable surfaces that allow rainfall to filter through the ground, slowing its progress to rivers, providing storage areas such as lakes and parks that can accommodate extra water in times of flood and capture rainwater to be used by the city's inhabitants. This thinking transforms the relationship between the urban and the environment, as well as managing flooding, Blue-Green Solutions also have the potential to reduce temperatures too.
3: They also reduce the urban heat island effect, so they reduce the temperature in the cities. For instance, um, if you put a lot of trees, trees evaporate water. They provide shade. They also provide a nice environment, a nicer environment for people to live in. Uh, So the livability of the cities uh, will increase. It has benefits for biodiversity. This other way of designing cities not only is a good strategy for climate adaptation but also um, a good strategy for creating good and livable cities.
1: So not only can nature-based approaches to urban planning improve the urban water cycle or reduce temperatures in summer, they also come with many other co-benefits. Adding different types of vegetation to cities can make a tremendous difference to their look and feel. It encourages the use of outdoor spaces for leisure, exercise, but also social contact, improving physical and mental well-being, while improving the air quality and conserving a city's biodiversity. Such improvements are particularly important for the poorer and vulnerable populations, who frequently have less access to green space. Urban planner Teodoro Giorgiadis tells us of an urban development project that aims at protecting vulnerable populations through the creation of green corridors in a city.
5: Actually, we are working with uh, medical doctors in order to, to make protocols uh, because within the city there is a problem of fragile population, particularly people that suffer from diabetes and uh, Parkinson and Alzheimer's. And in particular, people that suffer from diabetes are very sensitive to changing temperature. And the idea is to make different uh, protocols in order to create paths within the city texture to allow the people, fragile population, to move within the city and to be protected by this uh, blue-green solution application in order to maintain their uh, energy balance within the terms that are um, functional for their uh, safety.
1: These co-benefits for health, well-being and the livability of cities may hold the key to allowing blue-green solutions to gain traction as a preferred approach to urban development in the face of climate change. As we'll hear after the break, this will become increasingly important as the impacts of climate change become more apparent in cities. Cities are highly concentrated areas of climate risk. They're home to a large and growing number of people, they contain the most expensive real estate, buildings and infrastructure, and they're also important drivers of economic value. Looking ahead, risk is likely to become even more concentrated in urban areas, as, according to the UN, 68% of the global population could live in cities by 2050 up from 55% today. The amount of growth is not expected to be evenly distributed around the world, with India, China and Nigeria expected to account for 35% of the urban population growth over that time period. Asian and African countries are expected to see the greatest urban growth rates, and this is significant as they are also regions that are expected to see some of the most severe climate impacts. Globally, cities will need to adapt to an increasingly unstable climate. And on our current greenhouse gas trajectory, the climate threat to urban populations will be very severe. A study released last year called The Future We Don't Want, which came from research by the C40 Cities Global Leadership Group, the Global Covenant of Mayors, the Urban Climate Change Research Network and Acclimatize, showed that by 2050, 1.6 billion people in 970 cities will face extreme heat, and 650 million people in 500 cities would experience a decrease in water supplies of over 10%. As we heard earlier, heatwaves can be extremely dangerous. The 2003 European heatwave is said to have claimed up to 70,000 lives, And in 2018, extreme heat was experienced across many countries in Europe, but also Canada, USA, large parts of South Asia and Japan. The Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute and World Weather Attribution estimated that greenhouse gas emissions more than doubled the overall likelihood of the heat wave. And in some places like Denmark, made it up to five times as likely. Anjali Jaiswal, who you heard at the very beginning, while working with the National Resource Defense Council, who in partnership with the Indian Institute of Public Health and supported by the Indian Meteorological Department and the Natural Disaster Management Authority, have helped India's cities to better prepare for high temperatures.
0: But the good news is that no one has to die from extreme heat and there are low-cost, low-tech measures that cities around the world can use. Right now in 30 cities in 11 states, there are heat action plans in those states and cities. These plans are inexpensive for the cities to have, especially the health department. Those formalize this process of interagency communication within the government, with media and the doctors, all playing a role, and community organizations coming together. They consist of an early warning system, a massive media campaign and awareness through ads and hoardings that are up throughout the cities.
1: The measures Angeli refers to are emergency plans which are especially important in parts of the world like India where temperatures can now climb to above 50 degrees C or 122 degrees Fahrenheit. In the face of climate change, the trend of soaring summer temperatures is likely to continue but they are not the only challenges cities face. Water, as Theodore Georgiadis explains, is another one. We see that the total amount of water
5: during a year more or less, it's quite the same, but it changed the pattern of precipitation. That means that we have the same amount, but we have a decrease in the precipitation episodes. So, when we have a single episode of uh, precipitation, it means for the conservation uh, low, it had to be much more intense.
1: Essentially, this means that there are fewer, but more intense rainfall events. These can overwhelm urban sewer systems and cause flooding. On the other hand, cities go through longer dry spells. A study released earlier this year by researchers in the University of Newcastle in the UK analysed 571 European cities, showing that cities in southern Europe would experience more droughts, central European cities would experience more heat, and northwestern European cities would be at higher risk of river flooding. The challenges cities are facing worldwide due to climate change are daunting and we will need a diverse set of approaches to cope with them. Blue-Green Solutions offers a methodology that can at least start alleviating some of these problems, but could also be scaled up to have a much bigger impact. The Blue-Green Solutions methodology was created as part of a project supported by EIT Climate Kick and led by Professor Sado Maximovich. The project that gave rise to the methodology was known as the Blue-Green Dream. This project set out to create a method for systems-level city planning, which encouraged blue and green infrastructure to be integrated into the existing urban fabric. Professor Maksimovich explains more. The main objective of the methodology is to
4: change the paradigm, change the mindset of urban planning and introduction of this, what we call nature-based solutions in the urban fabric. And in that way, we think that uh, blue-green solutions is, uh, in a way, unique methodology which looks at the city as a whole, not only urban, but also could be suburban, could be rural areas, and also could be implemented to any other system, like transportation or even corporations, if companies adopt This philosophy, blue-green integrated interactions, as their corporate strategy, which we are working on that,
1: they can make a much bigger profit on their core businesses. So how does it achieve this? Well, the key to the blue-green solutions methodology is to integrate blue and green infrastructure into city planning at the systemic level. This means bringing on board a wide range of stakeholders and involving municipal departments that are not used to thinking of vegetation and water as infrastructure. According to Professor Maximovich, it is identifying the systemic interactions between the urban water cycle and vegetation and city functions such as health, transport, energy, and indeed its resilience to climate change, which distinguishes the Blue-Green Solutions approach from other green infrastructure measures that are sometimes applied in cities.
4: Green infrastructure are not new, but depends what people comprise by that. People think, uh, let's plant a lot of trees, and that is green infrastructure. If you plant trees randomly, if you don't select proper tree for proper function, that is, in my view, not proper use of that natural resource. The difference between the blue-green solutions and conventional, let's say, green infrastructure is that in the blue-green solutions, we start our concepts before the architects draw the first line or urban planners or landscape architects. We bring together all stakeholders interested in that part of the city, that district, that house, that part of the structure. And we analyze what are, first of all, locally available resources, how we can combine these resources in their interactions and multifunctionality, how these then can be used in meet the main objectives goals of that development we look at the goals and then goals drive the development and environment so goal-driven planning is one of the key elements of this planning methodology which means you define the interactions between these resources between infrastructures and practically Part of the planning, we look at these interactions, we optimize them, we economize with them, we monetize them, and we build, plan the system in which we maximally use these interactions. Water, energy, environment, air, food, transportation, mobility, they all benefit from supporting each other rather than being planned as it is currently planning in silos separately. You plan separately, traditionally, you solve one problem, you create another one. Blue Green looks at entirety of all these systems and how they support each other, how they interact by making the whole system more financially efficient, environmentally friendly. So so the key difference is such is that differences that we look at the multifunctionality and we use the multidisciplinary approach to planning and as a result we get much better healthier cleaner more resilient solutions
1: this approach is great in theory but cities are complex systems and it's often hard to persuade decision makers of the benefits of blue green solutions without being able to show tangible benefits or examples of how it all might work to overcome this and make blue green solutions more accessible the blue green dream project team worked closely with Deltares altera Wageningen University Research and Bosch-Schlabbers to develop an adaptation support tool, a computer-based planning tool that provides examples of how blue-green solutions can be integrated into particular urban systems. Franz van der Ven from Deltares tells us more about it.
6: We developed, first of all, knowledge on the effectiveness of selected blue-green solutions and the second important component was the development of a planning support system called the adaptation support tool. That tool meant to support the planning of green infrastructure solutions in existing urban areas.
1: The tool is especially important when looking to retrofit blue-green solutions into the existing urban environment. It supports decision makers to understand how best to do this
6: we have a very complex planning effort in front of us. And the question is how to resolve that in an efficient way. So to involve all these stakeholders in the planning process, and in the end, sometimes the landscape architect and the drainage engineer have to come with final plans. So we said what we have to do is, is we have to make sort of a step in between. We have to make it in the conceptual phase of design. When the first plans are drafted, we have to sit together with all these stakeholders And we have to discuss what could be attractive adaptation measures and where they could be implemented. And, of course, in the meantime, calculating how effective they are and if they are effective enough according to uh, the norms and standards we would like to apply. That brought us to the idea of, of developing that adaptation support tool.
1: The adaptation support tool then allows stakeholders to collaboratively work on planning problems together, selecting and discussing what solutions are appropriate for the specific urban area in question.
6: It is a web-based computer program that runs on a touch table, so all these stakeholders stand around the touch table, uh, around the district really, uh, around the map of the district, and uh, by clicking on the touch table you can draw and you can select... And the touch table also always shows, of course, the results of what you have been doing, the metrics. But the fact that you stand around a map, it's a digital map, but you stand around a map facilitates the discussion. And The advantage of doing this on electronic map or a touch table that we can also switch to Google Earth and show how the area precisely looks like, show the backyard of that house to see if anything is possible in that backyard. Because that is the level of detail we can zoom into if you like. On the other hand, we can zoom out and take a look at the whole district or even go beyond the whole district in relation to the city.
1: This level of conceptual detail around nature-based infrastructure options that can be implemented in a specific place is something that is often not available to urban planners. And by seeing such options alongside traditional grey infrastructure options, the tool could help normalise blue-green approaches.
6: The tool now contains a list of 72, 73 different types of blue-green and grey solutions. In many situations, some of the participants only know, what is it, five of the 70 solutions, maybe ten of the 70 solutions. A lot of these solutions, a street engineer is not aware of all the solutions we have in blue-green infrastructure, for example. So the first step is to learn that other solutions exist and how they could look like.
1: For Tim Van Hatten, the tool provides an ideal starting point for discussions and also gives evidence of the efficacy of different sets of solutions.
3: It really works well because what you can do with the tool is immediately discuss what kind of strategy you want to apply in a certain district. Uh, For instance, you want to uh, provide all the buildings with green roofs and you want to apply uh, bioswills in in a certain area. And then you can, with all the stakeholders, uh, well, discuss, okay, this is a strategy we want to apply for this district. And then you can immediately calculate what the effects will be on, uh, for instance, on prevention of floods, but also um, on the the urban heat island effect. So you can calculate that uh, immediately on a map table and you can see the effects.
1: The adaptation support tool facilitates discussions and awareness among stakeholders in urban development, which are much needed in order to bring about change and widespread innovation in the field. The approach appears to be working. The tool has been made available around the world and Franz told us of the positive impact it has on cities such as New Orleans.
6: We operationalized that over the past couple of years and we used it now in many, many cases, made a derivative of it for the city of New Orleans. They now have their own annotation support tool have to support their stakeholder engagement meetings in their city. Uh, I, I never, ever had a negative discussion uh, in the workshop, so that's surprising because interests are conflicting one way or the other. People just want to improve their uh, direct area they live in and so there's always that positive atmosphere.
1: The tool which is being made open source will need to be adapted for use in different urban contexts, as it includes cost-benefit calculations for each of the adaptation options that are selected and needs to be calibrated according to the different climatic and social realities of the cities in which it is being implemented. Fran says that the tool can help open people's eyes to the potential of blue-green solutions, but only if they are held to the same standards of effectiveness as other adaptation options, something that they took very seriously when developing the tool.
6: What we have found in practice, also in the Blue-Green Dream project and later on, is that a lot of claims are being made on the effectiveness of certain solutions, from green roofs to bioswales to etc., in terms of hydrological effectiveness or water quality improvement effectiveness and etc. But the moment you go into the the scientific literature and you look for proof of this, it's a different story. What we always have said to each other, we only want to include evidence-based information. So uh, all the information that is the data included in the model is evidence-based. That was the biggest challenge and still is because gradually more information is becoming available on this, but we wanted to stay away from the claims that the market makes in terms of effectiveness and uh, only include proven effectiveness.
1: The timing of the Blue-Green Solutions project is incredibly important, and scaling it up enough to influence planning decisions around the world could dramatically alter the development path of many cities. The explosive growth in urban areas means that they are more at risk, but it also means that there is a massive opportunity to influence the planning decisions behind the infrastructure investments that will be made. The Blue-Green dream, then, is that nature-based solutions can form an integral part of that development.
3: In the coming years, there's a, a figures say that uh, $90 trillion will be spent on urban infrastructure in the next 15 years. So every development project or redevelopment project in the urban areas is a huge opportunity to make that climate resilient. And if you don't do that at that time, well, you are too late. And I think Climate Key can play an important role to start convincing also the financial sector that it's worth investing in nature-based solutions. And that's still a, a gap because investors don't see nature-based solutions still as a, as a big opportunity. But I really think that, is a, that it is a big opportunity for being climate resilient, creating more livable cities, but also for business-wise. So connecting with this financial sector, I think there's a huge opportunity.
1: Climate change is forcing cities to adapt to environmental threats while dealing with social and economic pressures as they grow. It's becoming increasingly clear that the planning models that have been relied on in the past are unlikely to be able to meet these challenges, and new thinking is required to ensure that cities can build their resilience while at the same time becoming healthier, more productive and more livable spaces for people to live and work. Blue-Green Solutions is really a story about challenging assumptions and reshaping conceptions about what the term infrastructure actually constitutes. If urban infrastructure is defined not by its form, but by the service that it provides to the population, then we can see a park as an infrastructure asset for flood resilience just as much as a concrete levee. This shift opens up a huge range of new options for building resilience, but requires a considerable amount of dialogue and discussion in order to be effective. Tools that help to start that discussion, like Blue Green Solutions Adaptation Support Tool, are hugely important if the blue-green dream is to avoid remaining just that. Thanks for listening, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, then why not give us a review on iTunes? That would really be a great help. As always, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, at This New Climate, and head over to www.acclimatise.uk.com forward slash This New Climate to learn more about this podcast. A big thank you to our guests, Anjali Jaiswal, Claire Hearn, Teodoro Giordiadis, Tim Van Hatem, Franz van der Ven, and Sado Maximovich. Thanks also to the C40 Cities Leadership Group, and to our Climate kick coordinator for this episode, Ellie Tonks. Content for this episode was derived in part from a series of innovation insight notes coordinated by Ellie Tonks and Gina Lovett for Climate Kick. This episode was produced by Climatize and EIT Climate Kick and was hosted by me, Will Bugler. Background research and narrative development was by Elisa Jimenez-Alonso and Will Bugler. And editing and production support was by Lower Street. See you all again in two weeks.